before we get to the late December date theories for the birth of Christ, I'd like to set the scene for you to understand what was going on in first century Israel. We began to talk about Christmas last week, and we're going to continue that today. There were two winter festivals that took place in the first century around Israel, in and around Israel. Neither one of them were Christmas. Let me explain what I mean when I say that. I want to begin with the festival of Hanukkah. Uh, Hanukkah was celebrated by the Israelites of the first century. Now you can read about this feast in the Deuterocanonical books. Some people call them the Apocrypha. You can read about this feast in 1st and 2nd Maccabees. I was going back over my notes today and I thought, oh, how I would have loved to have grown up with 1st and 2nd Maccabees in my Bible. But I didn't learn about them until I was older. Remember that these books were in the 1611 King James Version and they were also in the 1560 Geneva Bible. One thing that we try to do as a family, my wife and I and our five children, not every year but a lot of years, we've sat down on the first night of Hanukkah and we've read 1 Maccabees chapters 1 through 4. And that's the best way for you to learn about the origin of this feast. Don't listen to what anybody else says. Just go and read 1 Maccabees chapters 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's the best way to learn. Hanukkah actually begins this coming week, by the way. Uh, according to my calculations, it begins Sunday night. So you could go ahead and plan a family reading if you'd like. In 1 Maccabees chapter 1, there's this Grecian king, heathen king, and his name is Antiochus. His surname or nickname is Epiphanes. He attached the name Epiphanes to his name because Epiphanes means God manifest and he had a God complex as a heathen ruler. Some people mockingly called him Antiochus Epimenes, which means Antiochus the madman because of how ruthless he was towards the Israelites of that era. About 200 or so years, maybe 150 plus years before the time of the Messiah, Antiochus took it upon himself to take over Jerusalem. He stopped all temple service. He removed all the utensils in the temple, silver and the gold. He killed anybody that was caught honoring the Sabbath or the feasts. He killed anybody who was circumcising their sons on the eighth day. He forbid the speaking of the sacred name. Matter of fact, historically, Antiochus was the first person to ever forbid people to speak the sacred name. So it wasn't Israelites that first forbid the speaking of the sacred name. It was a command from a heathen king towards Israel to not say the name. He forced people to eat pig. And he even offered up a pig on the altar at the temple and he did this on the 25th day of the ninth moon uh, on the Israelite or Yahweh's calendar. Some people in Israel forsook the Holy Covenant during his time and they went after the ways of the heathens. Other people in Israel chose to suffer and die instead of break the covenant. They stood strong for the Almighty. There was an Israelite man named Mariahu. In Greek, they call him Mattathias, but he was Hebrew. His name was Mariahu. And he was one people or one person that fled from Jerusalem. He fled first to a country named Modin in order to save his life and the life of his family. And he was later approached while he was in Modin from messengers that Antiochus sent. And they asked him to follow the king's orders. Come back and follow the orders of the king. 
And Mattiahu refused. And he said this, 1 Maccabees 2, 19-22. He said, I don't care if every Gentile in this empire has obeyed the king and yielded to the command to abandon the religion of his ancestors. My children, my relatives, and I will continue to keep the covenant that the Almighty made with our ancestors. With the Almighty's help, we will never abandon his law or disobey his commands. We will not obey the king's decree, and we will not change our way of worship in the least. Well, Mattiahu had to flee again, and this time he fled out into the wilderness where he lived, along with some of the other Israelites who would not forsake Yahweh's covenant. They lived there, and they obeyed the Torah the best that they could while they lived in the wilderness. Antiochus found this out, and he sent an army to kill these Israelites. And he was tricky because he sent the army on the Sabbath day because he knew that the Israelites would not fight. And sure enough, they did not fight. And a thousand, around a thousand Israelites died. They had a meeting there. Mariahu decided that from now on, if somebody came against them and attacked them on the Sabbath, they would defend themselves. They wouldn't go on the offensive on the Sabbath. But if somebody attacked them on the Sabbath, they would defend their life. So they built this Hebrew militia of sorts. And they began going around and wiping out pagans and paganism in the area. And they considered their actions justified. They would quote passages in the Torah and Deuteronomy. And the reason they considered their actions justified is because they did not start the fight. The fight was started against them. Their country was taken over. So they would look at people like Phineas in Numbers 25 that threw a spear through the Israelite man and the non-Israelite woman that committed whoredom there in front of the temple when Israel had joined themselves to Baal Peor. Well, Mattiahu later died, and the people mourned his death. But his son, Yehuda Maccabee, became the commander. Yehuda was nicknamed Maccabee. Maccabee is an Aramaic word that means hammer. And the reason they called him Yehuda the hammer was because of his great abilities in war. He was like David's mighty men. He was devoted to both destroying pagans who had ransacked Jerusalem and he was devoted to destroying paganism, heathenism. Well, Yehuda Maccabee and his men eventually took Jerusalem back over by force about three years after Antiochus defiled the holy city. When Yehuda Maccabee took over Jerusalem with the Israelites, they destroyed the defiled altar. They got rid of the defiled altar. They built a new altar and they made new utensils for worship in the temple. 1 Maccabees 4, 54 through 56 and 59 tells us that on the 25th day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev, in the year 148, was the anniversary of the day the Gentiles had desecrated the altar. On that day a sacrifice was offered on the new altar in accordance with the law of Moses. The new altar was dedicated and hymns were sung to the accompaniment of harps, lutes, and cymbals, all the people bowed down with their faces to the ground and worshipped and praised the Master for giving them victory. For eight days they celebrated the rededication of the altar. With great joy they brought burnt offerings and offered fellowship offerings and thank offerings. And then Yehuda, his brothers, and the entire community of Israel decreed that the rededication of the altar should be celebrated with a festival of joy and gladness at the same time each year, beginning on the 25th of the month or moon of Kislev and lasting for eight days. 
Now we read of the reason for the eight days in Second Maccabees chapter 10, verses 5 through 9, where it says, They rededicated the temple on the 25th day of the month of Kislev, the same day of the same month on which the temple had been desecrated by the Gentiles. The happy celebration lasted eight days like the festival of shelters, tabernacles, Sukkot. And the people remembered how only a short time before they had spent the festival of shelters wandering like wild animals in the mountains and living in caves. But now, carrying green palm branches and sticks decorated with ivy, they paraded around, singing grateful praises to him who had brought about the purification of his own temple. Everyone agreed that the entire Jewish nation should celebrate this festival each year. The days of Antiochus Epiphanes had come to an end. So the reason for the eight days of dedication was to remind the Israelites of how just a short time before, remember this was the 25th day of the ninth moon, a short time before in the seventh moon on the 15th day would have been Chag Sukkot, the Feast of Tabernacles. But they were not able to keep Feast of Tabernacles in Jerusalem. So they said, in remembrance of tabernacles, we'll wave the palm branches and we'll be thankful that now our city is restored. There's a legend about the miracle of the oil that lasted for eight days. That there was just a little bit of oil and it lasted for eight days and thus we have the eight days of Hanukkah. That's more of a legend, maybe a myth. Could be true, may not be true. It's not recorded in the books of Maccabees. The reason for the eight days is listed here in Second Maccabees 10, historically. Now, if you'll notice in these texts, it mentions dedicated and rededicated. The word dedication in Hebrew is the word Hanukkah. So when you hear somebody say Hanukkah, it means dedication. And the reason it's called Hanukkah was because the city and the temple was rededicated back to the Almighty. And this is mentioned in John chapter 10, verses 22 through 23, where we read, It was the feast of dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Yeshua was walking in the temple in Solomon's porch. Now, there's a footnote out beside this verse in the 1611 KJV. I have a replica at my house. And in the 1611 KJV, out beside it, you'll see it on the screen, it refers you to 1 Maccabees 4, verse 59. That's because 1 Maccabees was in that Bible until some Protestants decided to rip it out of the Bible. Um, so the Feast of Dedication or Hanukkah is not a commanded feast. It's not commanded, but it does have righteous origins and is permissible to observe or memorialize if you so choose. Now obviously as humans do a lot with things and celebrations, Hanukkah has turned into a Jewish Christmas for a lot of people where they have a Hanukkah bush and it's more about gift giving but you read about the origin of the festival in Maccabees and it should be a time that we remember the righteous people who lost their lives for the Torah and thankful that Yahweh's law and his dedication was back in Jerusalem under Yehuda Maccabee. The institution of the festival of Hanukkah shows us that it's permissible to observe feasts in addition to those that are commanded. The law in Deuteronomy 4 verse 2 is not against any additions or subtractions. What it's against is adding commandments or taking away commandments. Hopefully we understand that. 
So it's, it's okay to observe additional feasts to the commanded ones so long as they have righteous origins, number one, and number two, so long as they're not substitutes for Yahweh's commanded feasts. So we can't keep Hanukkah and say we're just not going to do tabernacles this year, we're going to do Hanukkah. No, that would be a violation of Deuteronomy 4 verse 2. So long as we're dedicated to the commanded feast, it's okay to keep additional feasts that have righteous origins and are not substitutes. Hanukkah was not a replacement for a commandment. Uh, the Israelites that instituted the Feast of Dedication did not think they were replacing any of Yahweh's commanded feasts. But I said at the beginning that there were two winter festivals in and around Israel in the first century. What was the second one? Well, the other festival was one that was kept by the Romans. Rome was not far from the land of Israel. And I want you to remember that the Jewish people in the first century were under Roman occupation. Uh, the Romans were the people who literally or physically crucified our Messiah, right? Jewish people had the freedom to worship their mighty one, but they were under some type of Roman authority. Well, the Romans kept a winter festival known by the name of Saturnalia. And Saturnalia was the most popular holiday on the ancient Roman calendar. It was a holiday that honored the god Saturn, which was the Roman god of agriculture, and some say it was the Roman god of time. It marked the end of the autumn season and the beginning of winter, when the harvests were all the way done and winter was knocking on the door. This festival was kept right around the time of the winter solstice. The winter solstice today on our calendar falls on about December the 21st. It's the shortest day and the longest night of the year. And people get weary in winter because of the long nights. And what are we going to do? Let's have a feast. <laughs> and so the Romans said, we're going to party, and we're going to have this festival in honor of the god uh, Saturn. It began in the B.C. era as one single day observance on the pre-Julian calendar and the Julian calendar so right around December the 17th, what we call December 17th. But it later expanded into a multi-day festival. And it, it looks like historically that by the time of the Messiah, it was a week-long festival from December the 17th to December the 23rd when Saturnalia was observed and kept. Now, I'm not going to take the time to read all of the ancient historians. You can do that if you like. You have them pretty much at your fingertips online. But there were several Roman authors poets and historians, some of them were Pliny, Macrobius, Catullus. They all wrote about this ancient Roman feast of Saturnalia. And that's where the dictionaries and encyclopedias pull their information from, those primary sources. I just want to cite one entry about Saturnalia from the Encyclopedia Britannica because it gives a good summary of this ancient Roman holiday. It says, Saturnalia, the most popular of Roman festivals dedicated to the Roman god Saturn, the festival's influence continues to be felt throughout the Western world. Originally celebrated on December 17th, Saturnalia was extended first to three and eventually to seven days. The date has been connected with the winter sowing season, which in modern Italy varies from October to January. Remarkably like the Greek Cronia, it was the liveliest festival of the year. All work and business were suspended. Slaves were given temporary freedom to say and do what they liked and certain moral restrictions were eased. The streets were infected with a Mardi Gras madness. A mock king was chosen. 
The seasonal greeting, Yo Saturnalia, was heard everywhere. The closing days of the Saturnalia were known as Sigillaria because of the custom of making toward the end of the festival presents of candles, wax bottles of fruit, and waxen statuettes which were fashioned by the Sigillaria or manufacturers of small figures in wax and other media. The cult statue of Saturn himself, traditionally bound at the feet with woolen bands, was untied, presumably to come out and join the fun. The influence of the Saturnalia upon the celebrations of Christmas and the New Year has been direct. The fact that Christmas was celebrated on the birthday of the unconquered sun, Deus Solus Invicti Nati, gave the season a solar background connected with the calends of January. January 1, the Roman New Year. When houses were decorated with greenery and lights and presents were given to children and the poor. Concerning the gift candles, the Romans had a story that an old prophecy bade the earliest inhabitants of Latium send heads to Hades and Phota to Saturn. The ancient Latins interpreted this to mean human sacrifices, but according to legend, Hercules advised using lights, phos meaning light or man according to accent, and not human heads. End of that reference, and you can pull this up online as well. Now, some scholars find it just too much of a coincidence that some of the practices of Saturnalia are still observed today during the winter month of December, building up to the winter solstice. Some of those things that we just read about Saturnalia, we still see in our modern day time. I'm of the belief that these scholars are correct. We certainly don't find anything in New Testament scripture showing that Israelite believers, Israelite Christians or Gentile Christians celebrated Yeshua's birth with, with greenery, with lights, with gift-giving, indoor trees, wreaths on house doors. But as time progressed, it makes sense to me that as later Christians began celebrating Christmas in the winter and heathens began to celebrate their winter solstice festivities, that gradually the two migrated and overlapped one another. Christians of the past, you can read in history, a lot of them didn't find any problem with this. Um, Martin Luther said that the lights on the Christmas tree represented Jesus as the light of the world. Uh, the evergreen tree represents everlasting life. So Christians in history have justified the mixing of righteousness with heathenism by saying that we have rebranded these customs, we've reinterpreted these customs. So the two winter festivals celebrated around Israel in the first century were Hanukkah, the Feast of Dedication by the Israelites, and Saturnalia by the Romans. Hanukkah is a celebration of stamping out pagan practice and heathenism. That's what Hanukkah is all about, stamping it out. It's a memorial of rededicating Jerusalem and the temple to the service of Yahweh and keeping of the Torah. You find Hanukkah not by the Julian or Gregorian calendar. You actually find it by Yahweh's solar lunar calendar in the heavens on the ninth moon of Kislev. Saturnalia, on the other hand, is a celebration not of stamping out pagan practice, but it's the celebration of a pagan deity, or it was in ancient Rome. It's centered on the end of the fall harvest. It's centered around the winter solstice, the beginning of winter, and the decorations for Saturnalia were put up to remind people that although the sun, the S-U-N sun, was having short days, it would come back eventually and we'd have longer days again after the solstice. Which of these two festivals reminds you of Christmas? Well, 
I want you to think a little bit with me here. In some ways, both of them remind me of Christmas. And let me explain what I mean and just hear me out. On the one hand, at Christmas, there is a great scriptural event memorialized, the birth of the Messiah. There's nothing pagan about the birth of the Messiah. Christians sing about and talk about the birth of the Messiah. They read about it. They preach about it from the narratives of the Gospel of Matthew and the Gospel of Luke. They remember when he was born. You even see these things called nativity scenes set up in people's yards where it has like this little stable and a little manger and, you know, a representation of uh, Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. And with all of that, I don't really have a problem because it all comes from the Bible, minus the December 25th date. I'll talk about that the next time that I teach. However, everything else, other than what I just said from the Bible, everything else that goes on during the month of December does not find its origin in righteous practices in Scripture. All the greenery, the lights, the trees, the wreaths, the partying, all of that looks awfully like the Roman festival of Saturnalia that just so happened to be kept at this same time of the year in the month of December. So what we have in Christmas is not an entirely pagan festival. There are some truths in it that are taken from Scripture, but we also do not have an entirely Christian festival because interweaved within the celebration of the birth of Christ amongst Christians today, we have trappings of previous pagan winter solstice festivals. So Christmas is actually a mixture of the holy and the heathen. It's taking an account, a righteous, pure account from the Bible, and is mixing it with heathen and pagan practices, and then saying that's okay because we baptized or rebranded the customs and made them mean something to us different than what they meant anciently. And you've heard people say, and I hear this a lot when I explain these things to people, they say, well, that's not what it means to me. That's not what it means to me. And the best thing I always think about is, <clears throat> what do you think it means to Yahweh? You know, It doesn't really matter what it means to me or to you. We should ask ourselves, what, do, what does it mean to our king? What does it mean to our king? The illustration that I've given many times over the years, and everybody understands this, is especially if you're married, you know, I went to my wife, our anniversary falls on January the 22nd, but if I told my wife that I wanted to celebrate our anniversary this year, but I wanted to do it on a date of a previous girlfriend and mine anniversary, but I want to celebrate it with her, but I want to do it on that date. I want to tell her I love her, but I want her to wear the color that my old girlfriend loved to wear the most. You can see the steam start coming off, off of my wife's head, right? <laughs> Any wife in here would wonder, what in the world is he talking about? <laughs> and see, we all understand that. And so we have to ask ourselves when we're dealing with our wife, it's not so much what it means to us, but what does it mean to my wife? How much more when it comes to Yahweh? It doesn't really matter what it means to Matthew. It matters what it means to the king. So that's who I need to be concerned with. Uh, it's my belief that Yahweh's people should not be involved in mixing his truths, a righteous event like the birth of his Messiah, with ancient 
Roman or heathen practices. There is one early church father that I found who speaks against celebrating the Saturnalia. His name is Tertullian, and he lived from about 155 to 220 A.D., and his writings are probably 3rd century because he didn't convert to become a Christian until he was around 40 years old. So it would be late 2nd century, early 3rd century. He's one of the, what's called the anti-Nicene or pre-Nicene church fathers. One of the Christians that was kind of prominent in a Christian community that lived before the Council of Nicaea in 325 A.D. Now, when it comes to the church fathers, I have mixed feelings because there's a lot of things I read that are just plain wrong um, when you compare them with Scripture. They're not Scripture. We can read them for good historical accounts. I have the 10 volume set at my house. It's good reading. And you can learn what a lot of the early Christian people believed. The thing about this subject, though, the subject of Christmas, is that I have not been able to find any primary evidence from the year 100 A.D., to the year 300 A.D., that anybody in Christianity celebrated a feast for the birth of the Messiah, whether it be Tertullian, Origen, Hippolytus, Ignatius, any of them. haven't been able to find anything in pre-Nicene Christianity. Um, it's just not there until the 4th century. In the 4th century, Christianity became the official state religion state religion in, in Rome under the Emperor Constantine. And that's when Christians no longer had to fear persecution from the heathens like they did in centuries gone by. So nowhere in the Bible in the first century, Messianic faith, in the second century, in the third century, I haven't been able to find anything where anybody celebrated in Christianity a festival for the birth of Christ. Tertullian talked about Saturnalia. I want to give you a couple of quotes from his writings. This first one is, is in his work on idolatry. Chapter 10. The Minervalia are as much Minervas as the Saturnalia Saturns. Saturns which must necessarily be celebrated even by little slaves at the time of the Saturnalia. New Year's gifts likewise must bear caught at and the Septimontium kept. And all the presents of midwinter and the feast of dear kinsmanship must be exacted. The schools must be wreathed with flowers, the flames, wives, and the audible sacrifice. The school is honored on the appointed holy days. The same thing takes place on an idol's birthday. Every pomp of the devil is frequented. Who will think that these things are befitting to a Christian master? Here's another quote from On Idolatry, chapters 14 and 15. Notice this carefully. He says, But if we have no right of communion in matters of this kind with strangers, how far more wicked to celebrate them among brethren? By us, the Saturnalia and New Year's and midwinter festivals are frequented. Presents come and go, New Year's gifts, games join their noise, banquets join their din. Oh, better fidelity of the nations to their own sect, which claims no solemnity of the Christians for itself, not the Lord's Day, not Pentecost. Even if they had known them, would they have shared with us? For they would fear lest they should seem to be Christians. We are not apprehensive lest we seem to be heathens. Let me stop here for a second. Some of this is a little bit difficult to understand the English, but what Tertullian is saying here is that the heathens will not keep the Christian feast. They won't keep the Lord's Day with us or Pentecost with us because they don't want to look like or seem to be a Christian. But yet he condemns some Christians in his day that are keeping the heathen feast and they don't have a fear of being counted or seen to be a heathen. Continuing on. But let your work shine, saith he, 
But now all your shops and gates shine. You will nowadays find more doors of heathens without lamps and laurel wreaths than of Christians. What does the case seem to be with regard to that species of ceremony also? If it is an idol's honor, without doubt an idol's honor is idolatry. Then do you say the lamps before my doors and the laurels on my post are an honor to God? They are there, of course, not because they are an honor to God, but to him who is honored in God's stead by ceremonial observances of that kind. So far as is manifest, saving the religious performance, which is in secret appertaining to demons. Now, Tertullian was not talking about Christmas because Christmas did not exist. Christmas, as we know today, did not exist back then, the mixing of the birth of the Messiah with all these Roman customs. But what it did exist was Saturnalia, and Tertullian was condemning some Christians who were dabbling over into this celebration with the Romans. There's nothing new under the sun. People dabbled today. People dabbled back then. Now, surely, if Tertullian condemned them going to the Roman feast of Saturnalia, his Christian brothers, he would have not approved of beginning a festival to honor the birth of the Messiah and then strapping to that festival the customs of the Roman Saturnalia. Of course, Tertullian would not approve of that. So on the one hand with Christmas, we have a Christian festival dedicated to remembering the great event of the birth of the Messiah. Uh, Christians sometimes ask me when I talk like this, they ask me, Brother Matthew, you don't believe in the birth of Christ? And, of course, I say, yeah, I believe in the birth of Christ. And then they say, well, what's wrong with remembering or celebrating Christ's birth? And I always answer, there's nothing wrong with remembering or celebrating Christ's birth. I was walking through my kitchen the other day remembering the birth of the Messiah. That's right. Thinking about the birth of the Messiah. I remember one time when my children were little, Rosalind was singing about the Messiah's birth, and we was in the month of July because we do celebrate our Messiah's birth. I don't believe we know when he was born. I don't think anybody knows when he was born. But there's nothing wrong with remembering or celebrating the birth of the Messiah. The Hanukkah precedent, the, the history of Hanukkah shows us that if we want to celebrate and remember a great occasion in the Bible, that's fine, so long as we don't do it as a substitute for Yahweh's commanded feasts. And so long as we don't co-opt heathen customs and try to add them to that celebration. And this is where the problem is at. Those who celebrate Christmas generally do not observe Yahweh's holy days. It's a substitute. Secondarily, those who celebrate Christmas while seeking to honor the birth of the Messiah, they have added this celebration to this celebration customs that have absolutely nothing to do with his birth. Nothing. Look around. In society, everybody and their uncle celebrates Christmas, not just Christians. Atheists, agnostics celebrate Christmas. They even call it Christmas. They don't even believe in the Bible. Why do they celebrate? I asked one one time. He said, because it's fun. (laughs) They celebrate it because it's a fun vestige of the ancient Saturnalia. And most people realize that it's not a scriptural feast. Most people do. They just make excuses as to why it's okay to do it now. But all the decor that you see at this time of the year does not stem from Hebrew culture, but from pagan Roman culture. So the question that you have to ask yourself is this, and I'll close with this. Is Yahweh pleased with ignoring his commanded feast, substituting them with our own feasts, and then incorporating within 
Christian feasts, customs from Greco-Roman culture, and baptizing and reinterpreting those customs? It's a question you have to ask yourself. I'm not trying to force my belief on anybody. My wife and I made our decision a long time ago about this, and we stand by it today. You have to ask yourself, what does it mean to the Creator? What does it mean to Him?